I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Billboard Sharpie Podcast. Mark Myers on the podcast today. Uh, many titles, Mark, but maybe the, the the most key one we can mention today: author of the new book *Anatomy of a Song: The Oral History of 45 Iconic Hits That Changed Rock, R&B, and Pop*. Great new book. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, Gary. All right, now, now we can continue on your your long your long uh, number of titles. Uh, you, you're a regular contributor to Wall Street Journal. Right. And this book is actually, actually based on your uh, it's a five-year-old column called Anatomy of a Song. Correct. What else do you do? I feel like I'm, I'm missing something. There, there's I post a... six days a week at Jazz Wax, which has twice won the Jazz Journalist Association's blog of the year. Okay. And uh, I swim in the morning and then sleep at night. And after that, that's about it. <laughs> Seven days a week. Um, uh, congratulations, first of all, on on this book. We've oh, been thank you. Yeah, no, we've been we've been talking for months. This is uh, exciting. That's finally here because we've we've talked for for a long time through the year. We're saying, oh yeah, when when the book comes out uh, later in the year, we'll we'll have you on. And it, it must be exciting for you now that you're in the publicity phase and you've seen uh, what, what what must have taken so long to finally be a reality. It, it is exciting, but you know, it's most gratifying to be with you, King of Charts. So. Well, you're a charts fan. Oh yeah, I was just going to ask you. Let me let me just ask you now. Uh, Billboard comes up a lot in this book. There's a lot of Billboard chart references. All all Billboard chart references. So you're a longtime chart fan. Oh yeah, Billboard charts. How did that uh, begin for you? I just loved the publication. Always loved the publication. And whenever I did research in later years, I always loved going back and catching the lingo. Like Variety, it also had its own language. Right. And the language seems to fit in with the time. So, you know, it's like wax and, you know, uh, there's, all, all, there's all kinds of names for jukeboxes and things, the platter, you know. Right. So there's a lot of fascinating language in Billboard that when you go back in time. So I love that. And... Uh so Wall Street Journal is where I do most of your writing. I'm thinking that you had to somehow find time to write a book with your busy schedule. Take us back to the beginning. You're doing the column. How did it turn into uh, this shouldn't just be a column. This should be an entire book. Well, we, what I did is um, we I, you know, spoke with my agent and we developed a proposal and went out into the marketplace and there was big demand for it. 
uh, because nobody hates music. Everybody loves music. Um, and most particularly, the oral history aspect of this, uh, what I've strived to do is to create an oral history that's different than any other oral history that precedes it. it it's almost, I, I purposely base these on almost a screenplay. They're very fast reading, right. and the people who are doing the talking in there are almost like actors in the screenplay, right. characters. So it's it's it, that's what uh, makes it so readable. It's uh, you can uh, you can kind of skip around if you want. You can go in order chronologically, but it's it's sort of a forty-five mini chapters where you can uh, sit down in a few minutes, find out so much information about uh, right there in the title. Forty-five iconic hits. It's a literary jukebox, Gary. <laughs> I didn't have to put my, my quarter into it. <laughs> exactly. Um, was it uh, was the writing process different uh, than writing a daily column? Because uh, literally, there's more of a shelf life for for a book. Did you did you think in different terms of the writing? Did you have more editors? A uh, different kind of pressure? Any of those uh, feelings? No. Um, once once I came up with the formula for doing it. Once I figured out, okay, I've got to select the characters, you know, the people who I'm going to interview for a particular song. Sometimes that's only one person, and sometimes it's four or five. But how best can the story be told? And once those are chosen, and once I'm able to get them on, then it's really a matter of adhering not only to what they've said, which is critical, but it's also making sure I capture their language. Because I think the the best thing I think that was said to me um, is that people have said, I feel like Mick Jagger's talking to me. I feel like Rod Stewart's talking to me. I feel like Joni Mitchell's talking to me. And that's, to me, that's the best compliment I could get, that I've stepped out of the way and that the reader is now connected with the heart and the passion and the poetry of the writer or the musician, him or herself. That's that's kind of the magic of the oral history uh, format, right? It's not like you're setting everything up. It's just, here are their words, literally. And the sound. You should almost, when you read Keith Richards, it should sound as though he is talking to you. That's what I was pushing for. In addition to the accuracy, in addition to the narrative, what's critical is that these things, that that the narrative sound like the individuals as close as possible. How long uh, was the process of writing this book from from the idea starting to now it's now it's finally out? You want to know? We fit, We shook hands on this thing a year ago. That's it? Yeah, I was up at, in addition to everything that I do, I, what I did is I simply set my alarm for 3 o'clock in the morning, seven days a week, and from October through till February, uh, it was pretty much 3 in the morning until probably 8 o'clock in the morning I would work on the book, and then I would obviously switch over to my columns for the Wall Street Journal. And then at night, after Jazz Wax, I would do a little more work and set things up for the next mini day that I would create by getting up. It was basically four hours of sleep a night. I was going to say you're like uh, the, the opposite of a bear who hibernates for the winter. <laughs> you, you, you decided not to sleep for the winter. <laughs> Pretty much. Wow. And, and it, you, you, you see how many it's, – it's not just obviously 45. You probably know the exact number of how many people were interviewed for the book. It's, quite, it's, it's many more than obviously 45. But for me, I, I felt from the beginning that these, these records – music has given me so much joy as a kid – and as a teenager, and as a college student, and today, that, that these songs were so special for us that I felt like I, I, I was paying back, that I, that I was paying tribute to the artists whose 45s I fought over with my brother all those years ago, um, and that I was able to interview them as a privilege. Right. You know, I treat it as a privilege. They're artists, and to hear their... Each song has a heartbeat, and to get that from the artist 
it, 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 that's the passion. That's the driver here. It was the drive to complete something that would pay these artists back for all the joy they've given me and you and everybody else in our, of our age and younger and older. Yeah, I would think uh, as much as uh, it obviously was work and you're, you're getting no sleep for, for an entire season, there, there had to be so many times where you looked at the schedule and you saw I'm interviewing uh, Keith Richards uh, on this day. It had to probably be pure joy for the most part. It is. I mean, you know, th- th- there is a terror built in. Um, it's, it's almost like you have, okay, you, you know, you're getting, you're getting 20 minutes or 25 minutes with Keith Richards. I have... 20 minutes or 25 minutes to get the whole story. Right. And that means we, ha- you know, he and I have to bond, have to warm up. We have to be good to go as fast as possible. And then he has to get into the swim of things and give me, answer every one of my questions in as much detail as I'd want. So it's a lot of research on the front end. And then during the interview, it's making sure that my eye is, one eye is on the clock the right. entire time. Because when the time runs out, Keith's gone. If I don't have the whole story, there's nothing to tell. Was uh, anyone uh, more forthcoming than you might have expected? Any pleasant surprises in, in so many of the people uh, that you talked to? I think the biggest surprise is that everyone was more than forthcoming. Yeah. Yeah, it was really interesting. Every single, I mean, whether it was Mick Jagger or Grace Slick, it was as if once they got rolling, it was as if they were talking about one of their kids. It was the, the pride and the the anxiety that went into it and the hard work and how they put it together and the things the accident all of these always have accidents there's right. accidents in almost every one of these but for them to share that there was enormous pride on their part and once they got going it was off to the races were, were you ever uh, catching yourself at times in the back of your head uh, just being a total music fan uh, beyond the writer thinking I'm, I'm talking to Mick Jagger you know for me uh, you know, I, I interview all week long, I yeah. mean, for my columns in the journal. So I'm interviewing celebrities four or five a week, constantly. So the celebrity of it isn't, isn't an issue for me, nor is it for meeting them, because I've done enormous numbers of in-person interviews with celebrities. Um, but I came to this as a fan. So, yeah, t- the short answer to your question is, holy smokes, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to Keith Richards. Right. And, oh, my God, it's Mick Jagger on the other end of the phone. There is, there is a thrill to that. But at the same time... I'm very quickly slapped in the face by the clock and the need to get the story because once the, once the time is up, it's over. You have to get what you need or else you're cooked. How do you uh, boil down uh, decades and decades of uh, rock, R&B, pop history to 45 songs? How did you choose uh, the 45? Um, 45 is obviously there's a 45 connection. Right. It's a single. Um, that's, that's no secret. Um, but for me, I wanted to make sure that each one of these songs, I'm not saying that each one of these songs is the definitive song of 45 years, that in 1967, this particular song is the best and only song ever recorded, and it's the only one that deserves this treatment. It's simply that over time, these songs almost stand in for the evolution of the music, um, that, okay, maybe other songs could have been better, choices maybe other songs would have been more uh, would have had greater impact but it almost doesn't matter because these are my these are the 45 that mattered to me and some people can argue about this in bars and in in living rooms or over thanksgiving dinner and that's what makes it fun everybody has a different series of you know everyone would swap others out so that's fun did you have a, a number before it got to 45? Did you like write down on a list, these are all the, th- all the songs I think should be there, and you realized it was uh, 332 and you had no, to cut it? No, no. Uh, because the column came before the book. 
and the column wasn't based on eventually we're you know Mark's going to do a book. Right. The column is really about who's available, which songs do we want to do uh, in discussions with my editors at, at the journal and the at the arena section, and you know which songs are cool. I mean that's the thing about these songs; they're not they're not the obvious choices, although they are extremely well known. Everybody knows all the songs and all the artists, but they're songs that are, they're not on the interstate. They're, you have to kind of get off and drive a little bit on the rural road. So Mick Jagger talking about Moonlight Mile, that's not a song you would really expect him to talk about. But what comes out of that interview is this harrowing loneliness of touring in 1972 and, and being alone and not and being mobbed by fans and being harassed and, at, during concerts and the loneliness when he talked about that period when he wrote this song looking out the train window at night I felt I was there and he was you could feel the depths of his soul when he was telling me this story that he, he had gone back in time to talk about this and was now expressing that same loneliness that went into the writing of the song and artists probably appreciate that someone is asking about more of a deeper cut. They probably talk about satisfaction uh, you know, every week. Someone's probably asking them about that. So you're probably getting a deeper side of them probably in some part because you're asking them about something that they don't always get asked about. That's also part of the, that was part of the strategy. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Uh, because really to ask them about songs they're sort of talked out about, doesn't, isn't gonna, I'm not going to advance the story. No matter how much I turn them upside down and try to get more out of them, I'm not going to get that much more out of them that, are, that doesn't already exist. The goal is to get stuff that's new, to go beyond what exists, and that was going to be a much more fertile ground if I, if we, you know, if, if I was able to get songs that were cool, you know, the ones that aren't out there, the ones that aren't cliche, the ones that are, that, you know, so Keith... Street Fighting Man was he was over the moon to talk about that song. He was so proud of that song, and no one had really ever asked him much about it. Right? You know, Jumpin' Jack Flash and all the other songs that you could imagine. But Street Fighting Man never really got much attention, probably because it. I think it only landed on the chart was some forty three. It didn't. It really didn't do that well. It's somewhere that it's some it's some god high god awful high high number that never really came close to being a, a big big hit. But he loves it more than any of his songs. He just loves that song. Did uh, Did you play favorites at all in picking these forty uh, fives, or, or knowing you, it would have been forty five jazz songs? So I'm, guess, <laughs> I'm guessing you, that there there was a lot of uh, objectivity. You know, these songs were part. A lot of these songs were part of my youth, or I have some special admiration for them, like Laudy Miss Claudie. Um, I had interviewed Ron Isley in the past. So I wanted to come back. I, I, I was at, I visited him at home in Saint in Saint Louis uh, for a feature feature interview with him for the journal. And then when I was doing the book, when we were doing the column, "Shout" seemed like the perfect song to um, to talk to him about because of its story. And then when you learn what happened and how that song and what the influences were and Ray Charles and the you know the theater and 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 how the audience was just so so excited and how they'd put him on last and Jackie Wilson so that's the thing when you when you turn these people over so much stuff falls out yeah, there's so many uh, details. I, I, I want to talk about five songs specifically. We'll, uh, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll go uh, through them. But you, you mentioned Shout. Like, I learned reading that that uh, churches were upset that that became a mainstream uh, pop hit because they thought it should be uh, a, a gospel uh, church song. Yeah, and you know the same thing. The, the churches are also upset about Oh Happy Day, yeah. which was a big hit in the late 60s, 68, um, uh, by the Edwin Hawkins Singers. But 
it, it's because the church felt that when the music went sa- secular, that the motive, the when the motive, the motive was no longer the Lord. The motive was now sexual. It was vice. It was all kinds of things that the church basically its job was to pull people away from that. Um, and when these songs are sort of turned into, uh, when these gospel songs or gospel-like songs are turned into um, secular experiences, the church feels as though they're um, they're being compromised. So, uh, Lottie Miss Cloudy, uh, Lloyd Price is the first song. It's chapter right. one. Uh, Forty-five is uh, REM, right. Losing My Religion. So it goes up through 1991. Correct. Why? Why is the cutoff 1991? Because I figured. Okay, what is an iconic song? What's the definition of an iconic song? Is it a song that was out a year ago and did really well? Does that re- is that really a measure? Will that number one song that came out a year ago really be something that everybody's talking about in 10 years and 20 years? So I used, my, I used a benchmark of 25 years. I said a song, I said for the purpose of this book, a song needs to be great. At, it needs to be at least 25 years old. And to be considered, and that's not unlike the baseball hall of fame, say, the rock a, and roll, it's, it's right? Like your own uh, rock and roll hall of fame. Exactly. Yeah. There needs to be some sort of standard. All right, we'll, we'll book uh, the next version for twenty-five years from now. I'm in. Uh, do you have a follow-up planned for the book? Yeah, 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 yeah. A couple of plans. So you know, that's that's to come. Um, the book seems to be. Um, people seem to love this book. Uh, they seem to take it very personally, and they, I think, like yourself, they're overjoyed that they're learning. new things about songs they could have sworn they knew everything about and that to me is a great delight that you get these extra little bits and pieces that you didn't know that went into the the baking of these cakes and and maybe most importantly is your family still talking to you after (laughs) all these hours that you've spent writing the book yes 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 um it's a hard-working household um, my wife completely understands. Uh, my daughter, who's 27, um, spent uh, some time sitting there listening, watching me go through all of this um, and hearing every day who I just talked to and not believing it. Uh, and I had to prove it and had to play back the interview for her <laughs> to prove that I actually talked to some of these people. So, um, they, yes, they're still speaking to me and they can't wait for the next one as well. Nice. And you weren't uh, blasting music at, at 3.30 in the morning, were you? No, 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 no. I'm a very good neighbor. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. There's no tenderness like grief in your fingertips.
We're speaking with Mark Myers, author of Anatomy of a Song, the oral history of 45 iconic hits that changed rock, R&B, and pop here on the Chartbeat Podcast. Let's go uh, song by song. Yeah, uh, Mark, let's for just do it. A, a few of these songs. Uh, you, you just heard a little clip of uh, Righteous Brothers. You've lost that love and feeling. Uh, we'll go chronologically. Uh, this one's in, in 1965. I, I want to ask um, why this one was so key uh, for, for this particular song. But w- one of the most interesting things I learned as soon as I started reading it is that a Marine just happened to name the Righteous Brothers. Yes, 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 um, which is fascinating. Um, the, to me, the wall of, Phil Spector's Wall of Sound is a critical change um, in the early 60s because people like Brian Wilson, even George Martin, everyone is paying attention to what Phil Spector is doing by overlaying um, and uh, overdubbing and layering all of this music. It, it sounds like there's a symphony in a room the size of a shoebox, and they're getting enormous texture. But this song, I think, really is one of the, I think this song is the definitive Wall of Sound song. And it's really Phil Spector's first male soul group. Right. Uh, everything, pretty much all of his other big hits were girl groups. So for this reason, for those reasons, uh, that's why I chose this song. It was, it was a Marine who yelled out, uh, that, that sounds right. That sounds righteous. That's brother. righteous, brother. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's so funny. Maybe maybe other people knew that. I, I didn't know that. Um, one of the really fun quotes uh, that, that you pulled out uh, was uh, Bill Bentley sings this song, and usually is it usually Bobby Hatfield was the one who sang. No, they both songs? sang together. It was okay. a duet, and they had you know they had co co interest in both singing. One would play off the other before they had reached this point. But this one was mostly this was going to be a Bill Medley. Song it was all Bill part. Medley. Bobby's really just doing background in places, right? But um, <laughs> so, so the line he said, he 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 got all insecure and said, what, "What am I supposed to do while Bill is singing?" And, and the response was so funny. Well, Phil, Phil, in his inimitable way, turns and snarls, "Go to the bank." <laughs> you know that this is you know he was just cutting to the uh, medley is so great on this song. You can't. There's no Phil Spector. His instincts were so so superb and so sensitive and so spot on that he sensed right away that. Bill was the lead vocal, and that you didn't need anything else. Right. Um, the interesting thing also is that this song, when it was originally done um, uh, by uh, Cynthia Weil and Barry Mann, when they originally, you know, put down the backing track, it was done three clicks faster. I mean, it was really, you know, it, it was it was a you can find it on YouTube, the faster version, but okay. it's it's impossibly fast for some reason, and again. Um, Cynthia and Barry didn't know that Phil had slowed it down for the record. They didn't know until Phil played it for them on the phone. But Phil also had that instinct that this shouldn't be taken, that it needs to be painful. This needs to be where this is a tearjerker of a song. Yeah. It's got to be slowed way, way down. Right. Um, now, I just like that bank quote. <laughs> I, was, I, I talked about this on the podcast before. I was at the Americana Convention in Nashville where uh, some songwriters were, were asked – uh, what, what's it like when uh, when you write a song that becomes a hit for someone else? Do you feel like uh, you've lost something that's yours? You know, how, how do you let that go? What's that like? And, and the response, and everyone burst out laughing, was, "You get a really big check." Exactly. <laughs> so you know, Bobby was going to get you know a, a, a um, uh, you know the performer's royalty on that, right? And you know that's what Phil Spector was saying. You know, you, you can go to the bank and count your money. Don't worry about it. And uh, one of the other benefits of the song is uh, it reinvigorated Brian Wilson, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, this is, you know, you, you can almost 
date the beginning of Pet Sounds to, you know, you've lost that love and feeling. The, the notion that there are so many musicians in there that Phil Spector is layering and layering and layering and layering um, the tracks on top of each other. Um, and that, you know, Brian Wilson comes to the conclusion that this is something he wants to do on an even bigger level. And without, you've lost that love and feeling, and without the Ronettes specifically, Pet Sounds may never have been. Yeah, as you start to read all these stories, you find out uh, everything is so interwoven and that uh, one song by the Righteous Brothers wound up influencing the Beach Boys and it, nothing happens in a vacuum. Nothing. That's you've, you've hit on something really interesting, Gary, which is that every song had an influence. Every song had um, an idea that was someplace else that was brought into it. Even Street Fighting Man. Keith is inspired by the sound of French police cars. Eh, 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 eh. That's that's where he got that's where he got the melody from. The the influence was French police cars. So it's always something, right? Which is fascinating, isn't it? We can't go on together with suspicious. Let's stay in the 60s. Uh, Elvis Presley, Suspicious Minds. Uh, his last Billboard Hot 100, number one. Why so significant uh, in Elvis's uh, career? Because it was part of his, his comeback. He, As much as he was still Elvis Presley, he hadn't had big hits uh, for most of the 60s. Pre- Elvis was in a real slump at this point in 68, uh, late 69. Um, he has the comeback in 68. And... He just can't seem to, and half the comeback is is oldies, right? It's like an oldies show. Yeah. It's not like Shana Nas. I mean, yeah. there's something very ancient about that leather jacket in the pit segment. But it's not until that very last song um, that that you realize that they realize when that's when that hit when that single did as well as it did, um, they realize they've got to soul up. That they've got to be more socially conscious. They got to be. They have to be more aware of Memphis's roots, and that's how they end up at Chip Smallman's American American Sound, because they want that. They want a more soulful feel for Elvis, which would be more in sync with what was going on. It was almost a uh, test case for pop acts that would come later, where uh, acts have had big success and then find themselves at a point where suddenly they can't have a hit and they have to reinvent themselves. Maybe he was one of the first. One of the first major artists to, to have that happen. Yeah, out of default, there was no there was no way not to because again, I believe his his number one last number one pop hit was "Good Luck Charm" in '62. I think it had been seven years. Yeah, yeah. it was a while. Um, it, it, I thought it's interesting that uh, the songwriter Mark James. It's it comes from the heart. He he was married but had feelings for for, for an old sweetheart. He seen yeah he, he was as as we talked he he, he was so, he was hung up over a high school sweetheart uh, or at least. She lived very far away. It was all the way down in Houston. Um, and I think he was in Memphis. And, but his wife sensed he wasn't focused in, in their relationship. And, she, she, you know, she was, she was constantly trying to find out, you know, what are you going to go visit her? I mean, there, there was that element of where, where's your heart? And that, that notion that his wife was not secure because he seemed to be still hung up over that high school sweetheart – she had a suspicious mind. Right. And that's where that comes from. 
So, and there's probably no uh, blueprint, right? Some song can be uh, completely based on a real life situation like that, and something else can just be total imagination of a songwriter. You said accidents. There's there's probably no uh, one way to say this is how you write a pop hit. Talk about an accident. He records it for Scepter as an artist, and it's sort of a Roy Orbison-y treatment. Um, sort of this dreamy sign of kind of articulation on there. So he records that. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't do very well. And, but at, he, he's, hired at, he's hired by Chips Moment at American Sound. Elvis comes in. Elvis needs material. Chips plays him Suspicious Minds by Mark James. Elvis has to have it. They keep the arrangement pretty much exactly the same. You can hear this on YouTube also. Suspicious Minds by Mark James. And he uses the exact same arrangement with some you know, modification. It's punched up and there's some inter- much more... Um, assertive things going on in there for Elvis's voice, but talk about an accident. You know, this song. No one would ever know this song if Elvis wasn't in a place where he needed to come back and needed new material and loved what he heard when it was played for him at that studio. And uh, Mark uh, says in the interview he he didn't want to jinx the recording. He left when Elvis recorded. He it seems like he was a, a little intimidated. To, to have Elvis, Elvis recorded with a crowd. But Elvis knew every single person in the room Uh, and would not tolerate strangers or his body language. They they knew they weren't going to get the best, most fluid, relaxed um, performance out of him in the studio if there were strangers hanging around. Elvis liked the guys. He liked he liked his gang, you know, his 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 Memphis crew hanging around. And, you know, one time Mark James walked in into the control room. And Elvis just stopped. He goes, who is, you know, who was that guy? What, what's he doing here? And from that point on, uh, James was intuitive enough to know that if he stuck around that 45, that, that, that demo might not ever get recorded. So. Right. And then uh, I'm giving away a, a few uh, secrets of the book here. But uh, Mark James found out after Elvis died that uh, Elvis had really become a fan and, and asked, he'd asked, are there any more songs I can get from this guy? Yeah, he, he, he was constantly saying, did, did Mark send me anything? You know, did Mark send me anything else? Did Mark send me anything else? But because of, I guess because of what had happened in the studio that day, uh, there was some tension in the studio, not between Mark and Elvis, but between Elvis um, and Chips Moman and Elvis's, um, the, the executives from RCA, um, in terms of how the money was going to be shared and whether who was going to get the producer credit. Um, and I think from that point on, after that album, uh, the, the Memphis album, Elvis's Memf- Memphis album, from that point on, they never used the studio again as a result of that bad blood. Um, but as, as a result, Mark James was sort of screened out as well. But, you know, he, he did write several other hits for Elvis that were country hits, but not on this level. Not, 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 didn't rising, they didn't rise to this level on the, on the pop chart. We're into the 70s now, late 70s, 1979. Blondie, Heart of Glass. Uh, it seems like it's maybe obvious why this would, would be a key one. It was, uh, it was a mix of – is it sort of when punk went mainstream and, and, and disco? and Punk kind went of had, disco. Yeah, had, had yeah. the right mix, right? Yeah. This is the, like, really – what people obviously don't realize it's the first punk-disco combination. Um, two forms that were at each other's throats during this period. Um, similar to some respect the way hard rock and rap went at it in the in the 80s right. uh, until Walk This Way which is a turning point also but for this for this particular song Heart of Glass 
this is a song where you've got this punk group. The song was inspired originally by the Hughes Corporation's Rock the Boat. It, Mark, uh, excuse me, Chris Stein wrote this um, in 19, in the summer of 74, was fooling around on his, on his guitar and just loved the sound of that song. You know, came up with these, came up with the song. They used to play it. They would play it in the in in, in CBGBs or wherever they were, Max's Kansas City, wherever they were playing. And the kids who would come all the time started to call it the disco song because it had this dance, weird dance beat to right. it. Um, and then they, you know, they they stuck a name on it. Um, Once I had a love, and then they just put it away. And it's not until '79 when Mark Chapman produces their first big album that they pull it out. And Chapman says, we need a title for this thing that's not going to cut it. And they come up with, with Heart of Glass. But it is based, not only is it based on, not only is it inspired by Rock the Boat, but when Mark Chapman asks Donna Summer, excuse me, asks uh, uh, Debbie Harry, what's, who's your favorite singer? She says Donna Summer. Right. And all of her high-pitched singing on there is reminiscent of I Feel Love, Donna yeah. Summer's hit I Feel Love. Right. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, and uh, Debbie Harry says uh, how, how tough those vocals were to sing. Those are pretty high notes she's hitting. It's funny. I asked her, I said to her, what was going through your mind? I mean, were you channeling somebody or were you thinking of this, that, or the other thing? And she said, I was just trying to get through the vocals. It was killing me, those vocals. Because she was singing. Most people think it's a falsetto. It's not. Uh, it's it's the soprano part of her voice. It's the high end of her voice that she was singing in. And it, like any studio experience, it's, all right, great. Take 34. Take 35. Take. So her voice is shredding out. And she's trying to deliver what's needed at a, at a very high level. So, it was, and, and another one of those cases where, uh, again, the artists uh, overlap. Uh, suddenly it's uh, because of Donna Summer that we have uh, the song in the Hughes Corporation. And Giorgio Morota. Right. Uh, because Mark Chapman, in the, in the analog age, keep in mind, it's still the analog age in 79, he creates this digital Euro disco craftworky Giorgio Moroder feel with Don, with that Donna Summer like vocal by Debbie Harry, and that's what Heart of Glass is. It's this uh, punk disco mash that is executed beautifully. Everybody loves everybody loves that song. It's just great. It seems like that's a, a major thread of of uh, rock history, where uh, there are these separate sounds. And then someone mixes them together. That's how you get uh, rock and roll early on. And then you get uh, rap rock and you get something like uh, dancey uh, punk. And even even today, I, I will. Sorry, Mark, I'm going to mention a current song. We, we won't know yet if it's a classic, but something like the Chainsmokers, Don't Let Me Down. Absolutely. It's got alternative guitars sounding in it. And then it's got the EDM uh, sounds later on. It's, it's the, Absolutely. The, these mixes it seem to be uh, every once in a while something comes along and you get that right that right recipe and the mix is, is uh, becomes a hit that just stands out and the unheralded hero throughout music history really is the producer it's the person who has the vision and gets gets the band or the artist to go there to go to a place that that person has in mind and that in many ways in many cases that is the difference between a huge iconic hit and just an okay song um, it's it's the producer's vision or the producer's ability to execute what the artist wants, you know, like Jimmy Page uh, and Robert Plant on Whole Lot of Love. You know, the, the engineer plays a big role there, you know, in terms of the dials and getting all that weird sound. Same thing on a Magic Carpet Ride. You know, it's the, it's, it's the artist, but it's also the person in the booth who's urging the artist to do something weird and different or letting them do it. Right. Giving them the leeway. 
And it's amazing how many uh, hit songs uh, at one point uh, the artist either uh, just put away and came back to two years later. A day. We just had Suzanne Vega on the podcast. Oh, wow. And, and she uh, she never thought uh, Luca would be a hit. She thought it was too, too – uh, the lyrics were too deep and, and too social. And it's always funny that, that it's it's the public that ultimately uh, makes the decision. It is. And it's and it, oh, many of those songs are almost last-minute songs. That's the other thing that was pretty interesting in all of the reporting and the, the interviewing that many of these hits were sort of the back pocket songs that the artist had in case things didn't work out. Um, time After Time is like that. Uh, a number of other songs are sort of, were sort of done at the last minute and became huge hits. The second hand unwind. If you're lost, you can look and you will find me. Time after time. If you fall, I will catch you. I'll be waiting. mentioned time after time cindy lopper 1984 uh this one uh you you write in the book is, is key because uh she she was so unusual and that's exactly uh what was good for mtv if you were unusual that that probably meant you were going to be a good mtv video star yeah she also captures and ta- she taps into and captures this secret recipe or this this energy that young women are all about in that period of time. There's something happening in the early 80s. Maybe it's a result of MTV. Maybe it's a result of demographics. Maybe it's a result of two parents working and kids on their own all the time and sort of growing up faster than they did in the past. But Cindy Lauper gets that with her thrift shop outfits and these loopy sort of cartoon-like way of singing and her passion and that poetry... Um, she captured something in young women, and that's why this song is so important. It, every woman knows this song today, and every woman knows exactly where they were when they saw the video and they heard this song. And I, that's a generational thing. Right. I, I, I love the song. Whenever I hear it, 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 I guess I realized when I was reading this, I, I never stopped to think about the lyric, the second hand unwinds. Maybe I just thought it was just some poetic songwriting, but... Uh, you, you, uh, you write in the book, uh, in, in the oral history of it, that it, it was that line was inspired by a watch that got demagnetized. Yeah, the producers, you know, Rick Chertoff, I believe his watch was, um, his, his second hand was going backward. Right. Because it was, he was too close to some magnetic field in the studio. And um, he said, gosh, my second hand, it's, it's, it's like it's unwinding. Whatever he said, Cindy Lauper captured that. Right. And worked that in, worked that into the song because the concept that time isn't going forward, that you're going back in time and you can't help it. Right. That, and even your watch is going back as a result of you going back. It's a fascinating. It's, it's a wonderful, um, it's, a, it's a dear, dear concept, right? It's, it's touching. Um, but, you know, she, this song's named because she picks up TV Guide in the studio, wants to come up with a name for a song, and she finds this song called Time After Time in TV Guide. It was a 1979 sci-fi movie that she said, yeah, Time After Time. Let's, let's do the song. Time, let's, let's call it Time After Time. And the, the whispering at the end that's so unique to that song, uh, she, she says that she got into some kind of a trance and it just, it just sort of overtook her. Yeah, having interviewed Cindy three times, there's something extremely special about her. Um, you, you realize she thinks in pictures and they're in vivid color. And she is um, she she goes to a place in her mind, in her emotions, and that's where these songs come from. They come from very deep, deep inside of her, 
And that's why I love her, love, love, love her music, because they are these deep expressions. And you talked a lot about how these songs are enduring. That that song has been remade by so many. Willie Nelson has remade it. It was a pop hit uh, by a band called Quiet Drive in 2007. That That's one of the most enduring hits of the 80s. Miles Davis records yeah. time after time. And that's because, getting to my earlier point, Cicely Tyson, his wife at the time, loved the album, loved that song. It touched her. That 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 frequency that's invisible that touches all of us on different songs, the way Jumping Jack Flash gets every guy, you know, this song touched women and touched women in a really deep and personal way. And she played it for Miles and Miles recorded time after time. Wow. Yeah. You're Under Arrest is the name of the album. I like how uh, Roberta Flack is a part of the recording maybe it's almost it almost seems like it's questionable whether she was there or not she she makes this this strange cameo that i'm almost wondering whether it actually happened you know rob told me that rob hyman told me that she was recording in a different studio i think it was at the record plant where this was done and she just pops in you know to hear what's going on or who's in there and she hears it you know while rob's playing it back and she just loves it and she goes on her way and that's completely plausible because that's that's what happens in studios. The, the, way, the way Brian Wilson meets Tony Asher is at a recording studio. Tony Asher is at the studio. You know, it's at, I can't remember the name of the studio. I think it was, was it Sunset? I can't, it may have been Sunset. Uh, no, it was um, um, uh, Western Recorders out in, Holly, out in uh, Hollywood. But he comes, you know, he, they meet in the coffee room, Tony told me. And they, they just hit it off. Tony was there recording jingles for the ad agency he worked for. Yeah. Brian was there working on Pet Sound, one of the Pet Sound songs, the instrumentals. And Brian just said, you know, do you write, you know, I'd love to write jingles. Brian says, do you write lyrics? And he, Tony says, yeah. And then a couple of days later, Brian calls and says, come on up the house. I want to write, write some music. He comes up the house and about a half hour later, God Only Knows is done. Yeah. And Tony wrote most of the songs on there, but that's a chance encounter at a studio. We, we just wrote about um, Islands in the Stream. Uh, uh, Kenny Rogers had been recording it uh, himself with Barry Gibb as the producer, and it just wasn't clicking. And then uh, I, I think was it Barry or, or someone else said, "Oh, you know, uh, Dolly Parton is, is recording right downstairs. Let's bring her up and song." Don't you love those stories? It just happened to happen like that. They're so human. I think um, I, I don't know if it's legend. I, I I think Lady Gaga and Beyonce met at the Billboard uh, Women in Music uh, a luncheon. Um, uh, it was 2009, I think. And that's how uh, Telephone wound up happening. And it makes sense because any of these artists at this level, all they do is live, breathe, and think music all the time. They're either in the studio or on the road or they're holed up in their apartments so the fans and the paparazzi aren't photographing them. So it only makes sense. The only place they take a break ever is in the coffee room at a studio right. or they want to know who else is in the other studios. That's, that's the only place they can meet. Right. We might think it, it's weird that they would connect, but they're on that same wavelength. They probably can't wait to pick the other person's brain, and we, we benefit because we get these great superstar collaborations. What is interesting, it's Roberta Flack's the first person to hear it, first outside person to hear it, and she's also the first person who really likes it. Yeah. <laughs> A good first endorsement. Yeah, and it's Roberta Flack, my goodness. All right, we'll do uh, one more song, Into the 90s. That's the last uh, uh, song uh, that's in this, this great book, Anatomy of a Song, uh, the oral history of 45 iconic hits that changed rock, R&B, and pop. It's, it's R.E.M., Losing My Religion, another song that the artist thought could never be a single, could never be a hit. 
Yeah, they, you know, they just, Peter Buck is sitting there in front of the television set watching the Atlanta Braves after coming back on a tour, I think in 87. And the volume's off, and he bought a box mandolin, and he never played the mandolin before. He's trying to figure it out. He bought it in New York, uh, and the guitarist that he is, he's figuring it out, and then he suddenly has this, this riff. But what was most fascinating, I think, in that interview is uh, Peter telling me that the riff that you hear in the song was inspired by Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. I did listen to it, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, and you hear the melody. It's clear inspiration, um, which is where that came from. And then, of course, once once the guys, you know, once once Peter, Mike, and um, uh, Bill record the music, they hand the cassette off to Peter, Michael Stipe, uh, who then writes the lyrics. And, you know, Michael, we, we had a great time on the phone. He talked about how in his house he cleared, he has this large enough space that he can walk in circles. And when he writes lyrics, or when he wrote these lyrics, uh, many of the lyrics to songs, he walks. He just walks in big circles. Okay. And somehow that process gets him into the groove where he's thinking of lyrics that will work, that are abstract enough, poetic yeah. enough, and one wonders whether that circular motion isn't record and turntable driven as well. But even after recording it, and, and we, if you hear it now, it just sounds like the most obvious hit. They, they still didn't think it was a hit, even after they recorded. They thought a radio song was going to be the first single. It was the third single. wasn't wasn't really any kind of a hit. Yeah, it's impossible. It's impossible to know why a song catches so many people's hearts. Some songs are good. Some songs are really good. They they sell well. But then there are those songs like "Losing My Religion" that just skips across the country like a rock across a lake that you are that it catches and today across the world everybody hears the message they get that angst they understand at that age group they understand why this song matters and this song what's also interesting about the song that most people may not remember or may not realize is that this song's breakthrough losing my religion lights the fuse for the grunge movement right because it is a big hit Early in the year, it's a big summer song, very big summer song. It's alt, it's alt rock's big summer song, and by the fall, Nirvana and Pearl Jam are now making sense. Now kids get the whole thing, and they're now those groups now grunge starting in the fall of '91. Grunge becomes a big deal and continues to be a big deal in the '90s, and it's the match that lights that fuse is losing my religion. The message connected. Um, most kids in high school, early college, were fed up with rock that was superficial in the MTV era of the 1980s. Um, they were fed up with the visual of a lot of these rock groups with hair and shoulder pads and everything else. They were looking for more meaning, something that connected to why they weren't popular in school, why they were getting beat up in school, why they felt a certain way in school. And they, they were looking for something. The other big thing that's important here from a technological standpoint, is what makes this song really, really count is the arrival of the Walkman. That students in high school not are not just going home to their friends' houses to listen to the record. Now they're carrying it around in their backpacks and they're putting it on during lunch hour and they're able to listen to it in a very personal way. Right. And that's what causes this song to become so meaningful. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, too, that... Uh, 
I guess I never really thought about this uh, either. There, there's not a traditional chorus to the song. It's kind of like uh, Lisa Loeb's Stay, where it's just sort of this right? free association of music. It, it's all catchy, but it's a different different type of, type of structure. It's, it's, it's almost a moonlight rant. It's almost as if Michael Stipe went up on the roof and was shouting this to nobody, to the, to, to the darkness or to the tree spirits. It, it's, it's, this, it's this wail. There's a wail-like cry of anxiety, and that's what touches such a large audience. There, there's so many fun uh, facts. In this book, Mark, uh, I'm not going to give away any more if, uh, if people want to read it. It's a really fun read, uh, Anatomy of a Song, uh, The Oral History of 45, Iconic Hits, The Change Rock, R&B and Pop. Uh, congratulations again, Mark. Oh, Gary, on, great. On, I mean, on, coming on from you, book. that means a lot. It's great being with you. Oh, I, I We've known each other for a while. I, I knew you before you had PR people. I had to go through your PR people to book this interview. <laughs> yes, I got to. It got to the point where every time I would call you to find out, you know, how the chart thing. Yeah, I always call you for chart information, and I always assumed that when that phone rang, you just knew it was me. But the beauty of the beauty was you. You were always there for me, and uh, I love you for that. Hey, we're all music fans. Agreed. Thank you so much, Mark. Congratulations on the book. Thanks, Gary. Thanks for having me. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.